This is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. Cesare, stand up, face the audience, <laughs> and deliver your message, please. The Grand Inquisitor. I didn't know I was going to be put on the spot. <laughs> Tell the messages. <laughs> so this is, uh, I guess, a story within a story, but really it's just a part of the uh, Brothers Karamazov. But for context, it's a conversation that two of the brothers, Ivan, is having with uh, Alyosha. And I think Ivan is describing a poem that he, that he has in his mind. And the poem is the uh, the Grand Inquisitor, and the way he describes it is about uh, it takes place back in the 1600s in Seville, Spain, during the Inquisition, and apparently Jesus comes back to Earth, and it's never stated uh, like he doesn't announce his return, but somehow through some way everyone knows that it's him. He beams with his energy, and anyone who touches him gets cured of their diseases, and. And all the while, the Grand Inquisitor, who's described as like a 90-ish old year old gaunt, like evil Sith Lord kind of guy, <laughs> is looking through the window and seeing Jesus do all these things and immediately tells the guards to go get him. And then proceeds to have a long, long one-way conversation. He, in fact, demands of Jesus or the Lord uh, to stay silent, listen to what he's saying, and to not, in fact, add any more to the Gospels or to what he said, because he has no right to what the Catholic Church or what the Church has been doing the entire time is fixing what he's done. And he references one specific example, or I think one tantamount example, which is the last temptation of Christ. And I don't know my Bible well enough to, to tell you where that is, but it's when the devil takes Christ to the desert and tempts him three times. Uh, I think once he asked Jesus to turn stone into bread to have people follow him. Once he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and tells him that if he just worships the devil, then he'll give him all the kingdoms of the earth. And one was to throw himself off a cliff and to, uh, and to have God save him, uh, the angels save him. And he goes by one by one, the Grand Inquisitor, obviously having this one-way conversation with Jesus, telling him how like this absolutely ludicrous that the devil was actually right in this, and Jesus was wrong to reject all these temptations because, in a way, Jesus's goal or God's goal was to have people follow them on faith and to not have this direct proof of miracle, to not have food provided for them as a bribe to follow them, to not have the unity of a political system. And the church says that they are, in fact, rectifying all this, that they are becoming the political you know, unity of man, that they are providing them with bread to follow them, and they are providing them with a way to even sin and have that sin forgiven for the billions of millions who are weak and ineffective uh, to be able to redeem themselves and live a happy life. I think I'm rambling. The last thing is the Inquisitor tells him that he does all this, and in fact, he takes this burden upon himself because him and his church members are hiding this great secret. There is no real redemption. I think it's hinted they're atheists even, they don't believe in God, but that they're going to let the populace believe this in order to save them, to have them live a happy life, and then probably die into oblivion. And the Grand Inquisitor, in fact, tells Jesus or God that he's going to burn him at the stake to stop him. And the way Jesus or God reacts to this is he kisses 
him on the lip silently and the Grand Inquisitor tells him to leave. And that's pretty much the gist of the Grand Inquisitor story. That's good. And I think there's a, a really important tension around the whole set area of the story where there's bodies burning in the air. There's a hundred heretics were burned on the day that this happens as well. And this is in the, the time of the... During the Inquisition. That's right. And so whenever you have Jesus imprisoned by the Grand Inquisitor, he tells him outright at the beginning that tomorrow they're going to consider you the most vile and wicked heretic because that's what I'll tell them and I'm going to burn you at the stake. And the people who ran to hold your garment today will rake the coals onto your burning body tomorrow. You know, it's really this enmity, if that's the right word. And that's when he kisses him. Well, he does, he sets that up at the beginning and then works through, and then he mentions it again whenever Jesus doesn't seem to be getting angry with him, and then, yeah, there at the end is when... I mean, maybe I'm thinking about the John Gilgood thing, because I watched that last night as well, which is just amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Wasn't that great? Uh, it's just incredible. I was like, my God, I, I this is incredible. But yeah, I mean, I think it was at the end, he said that right just before Jesus kisses him, said, I'm going to go burn you tomorrow. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I think that the Grand Inquisitor was really a very unsympathetic character until you get to the end. Yes. And you realize that basically he says, what kind of people could actually do what you've asked of them? Uh, maybe a few hundred thousand, maybe ten, maybe a few tens of thousands. And what about the hundreds and hundreds of millions who can't? You just did this for a select few. Fuck you. Like, like I, I love the people. I love the people so much that I, that I don't want them to have a life of misery followed by a death of misery, an eternity of misery. So I'm going to make their lives as good as they can be while they're on earth. And I've got a really fucked up way of doing it, obviously. But, you know, at the end, I was just like, yeah. I mean, that whole thing, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son such a hear it all the time. I mean, it reminded me of the Camus story. Like, yeah, right. We're all supposed to throw ourselves into the fucking Sen to save people. And so you get to, you know, you can either be like Jesus or, you know, go to hell and have eternity and damnation. You told Jesus uh, that he misjudged human character, right? That he rejected mystery, authority, and um, miracles. Miracles. Yeah. But that's, in fact, what humans need in order to live happy lives. The other thing that struck me when I saw the John Gielgud thing last night is, I mean, I know this sounds totally superficial, but it actually isn't. I'm thinking about the church and how it's a structure. I always think of it as a structure. You know, I think obviously because we have these buildings and stuff, but I think of it as structure. And if you think about faith, I don't think of that in terms of structure, just, you know, visualization, metaphor, all of that stuff. And when I was looking at the Gilgood thing last night, Gilgood was playing the Grand Inquisitor, and he was dressed up very properly for the church as a cardinal. And Jesus comes in, and they take the robe off of him, and he's sitting there half naked. It's pretty hot, too. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I was actually looking Hot Jesus. quite closely at that moment, but anyway, <laughs> but yeah, yes, yeah, but it, it be that as I never really thought of Jesus as hot, but okay. Got those washboard abs, you know, yeah, he's got right. the whole thing, the Veronica Lake hair. He's got it all going on. But anyway, I mean, it, it struck me as an incredible difference between the two of them. And think about this whole discussion in the Grand Inquisitor, that you have the church on one side, and then you have Jesus and or faith, if you want to think about it, on the other side, and they're crashing against each other, they're really trying to devour each other. And I remember thinking, I've always thought all my life, you know, faith has nothing to do with the church. And it really doesn't. 
it's fascinating to see that the church is where we set up structure and we set up rules. And actually, I remember thinking after I first read this about raising kids, the first rule is they need to have structure. They beg for structure. Kids need structure in order to grow. And I was thinking, wow, that's what this guy's doing. That's what the Grand Inquisitor is saying. Look, you have to give structure. And Jesus is like half naked sitting there. No, we don't need structure. Faith is not structure. Faith is not rules. Belief is not rules. Yeah, and I think that there's an affection for the Jesus character in the story that it's Ivan telling the story to Alyosha, I believe. And I think that Ivan the heathen. But Ivan is also rebelling against the church, and Alyosha is a monk or becoming a monk. Well, and see, okay, we talked about the fall just a second ago, and I see a similar sympathy there between the the writer and the, the Jesus as man, or whatever this Jesus come back is in this story as well. And the fall, John Baptiste was talking about Jesus and his you know sympathy with him being on the cross and being persecuted. And here, I think that you see a similar sympathy through his action. It seems to be that this is a good man, just basically, and it emanates from him, that energy, uh, you said, Cesare. Ivan, whenever he's telling the story to Alyosha, he says, I think that would be the key to making this a good story. If I could somehow describe this ineffable magnetism that he would have, I would have a good story. But anyway, everybody sees it and knows it. It's taken as read. And at the end, you have Jesus there able to come and change the mind of the Grand Inquisitor, even after all of this. So there's that turnaround, that twist. I think that it's a really sweet way. Yeah, but look at how he changes his mind. What he changes his mind by keeping him from burning him, right? Well, I guess I, well, I mean, the way he changes his mind is what's interesting to me because I think that that character would have been burned on the stake if that's what the Grand Inquisitor still wanted to do. He wouldn't have fought it or he wouldn't connive to get out of it. Yet he did show a sympathy. He reached out. He had compassion for this man, though, even the one that hated him and wanted to burn him. And that made the difference for the Grand Inquisitor. It, it, it shook him up. And I think that's a, that upset is really important at the end. I always wondered if he was trying to make another sly joke about, you know, the Romans killed Jesus the first time and the Roman Catholic Church killed him again, like killed who he truly was. Who he represented. This whole scene is, uh, you really get the most sense of the character of the Grand Inquisitor uh, because it's him talking the whole time, but you become more impassioned with him as he goes on. This, I mean, I think this is on 307. This is his charge here. He says, you wanted to gain man's love so that he would follow you of his own free will, fascinated and captivated by you. In place of the clear and rigid ancient law, you made man decide about good and evil for himself with no other guidance than your example. But did it never occur to you that man would disregard your example, even question it as well as your truth, when he was subjected to so much fearful a burden as freedom of choice? In the end, they will shout that you did not bring them the truth, because it is impossible to have left them in greater confusion and misery than you did, leaving them with so many anxieties and unsolved problems. You see then, you yourself sowed the seeds of destruction for your own kingdom, and no one else is to blame. And think now, was this the best that you could offer them? And I, I, I mean, he's angry. I, and I think that he's angry at Jesus he's as God and, and himself, probably. Because he does still have faith. Yes. That's the interesting thing. I mean, that's his big confession. His two big confessions. He loves man and that he still has faith. I don't think he was ever going to burn him. I think he just wanted to rail at him. 
Yeah, it sounds like the person that's angry at their creator or, you know, because, I mean, he is just angry. He says, why, you know, there's one point he's like, why are you smiling at me like that? I don't I don't want your love. I don't love you. Yeah. Why did you come back now? You said that you were going to be back and it's 15 centuries later. Nothing. We've stepped in to fill in the gap. We've given food to people. They don't need your uh, cloud bread. They need earth bread. They don't need your cloud bread. (laughs) And we've given that. They gave us their freedom freely because that's the burden that you left them with. And this institution has stepped in to serve a practical, real-world function. And, of course, not mentioning all the while what what they've been taking, too. And yes, and so all this time, as as soon as I'm pulled in, I remember the smoke around the city that must be there from burning heretics. I was interested in the very beginning, or close to the beginning, when he says, he comes silently and unannounced, yet all, how strange, yea, all recognize him at once. And I wondered about what Dostoevsky, you know, is this some little bit of magic, or does Dostoevsky think that humans will necessarily recognize the divine, or recognize some form of perfect mercy, or something like that? How was it that people knew it was him? He's, uh, you know, he comes unassuming. I, I was wondering what, everyone, what people's thoughts were on that. I was going to say, I knew Jaskowski was uh, like a religious man himself, or at least uh, strongly believed in God. So I think he would give a sympathetic reading to actually believing in the second coming of Christ or making that a, a real possibility. Wasn't he Orthodox, Dostoevsky? I, he wasn't Catholic, so I think he, it must be Orthodox. Yeah. So in theory, wouldn't he be more on the side of the church? I mean, I'm looking at this as a debate, as a a sort of one side, other side. One of the great things about Dostoevsky is, like, despite being a very religious person, he uh, some of the best writing against religion and God or for atheism is written by him. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, obviously he was questioning all of that. But I think it's a sympathetic reading of the coming of Christ that that would that's just how he would envision it then. Yeah, I think that it's very sympathetic. I mean, I think that this, and it's even mentioned. So one of the interesting things about this story is that there is, he's telling it out loud to his brother and they get in an argument back and forth because he's just conceptualizing this idea that he's had for a while. Or I think in the story, it's actually a a short story that he wrote a while ago or something that he's been working on. But then Alyosha chimes in with like, well, hold on here. What do you mean by freedom the way you're using it? And questions the way he's delivering the story. The one thing that he says was, you know, you realize that you're glorifying Jesus in this. And he's highlighting the themes and the, the, the point or the thrust or the morality of the story. You know, he asks, wait, oh, so is this a goof? Is he really, is this just a fantasy of the Grand Inquisitor? What are you trying to say with the story? Is this just a fantasy? Because what would this mean? It, you know, if there really was Jesus come back, like, what are you trying to say um, is what he gets at. Ivan's not like, he's not trying to figure the story out. It's something that he's come to. And he actually pushes back on Alyosha and says, no, 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 like what you're seeing here is you're, you're thinking that I haven't, you know, thought all this through. I'm looking for a page where it's 303. He says, you know, I'm afraid I'm lost again. And what does that mean? There was no lack of warnings and signs. This is a really important story for Ivan as well. I mean, he gets worked up and heated and as uh, hot as he gets whenever he's uh, talking and making up everything seemingly in the fly in this conversation with his brother, he gets more and more bothered throwing the anger at uh, the story from the character. So Ivan's telling the story from the Grand Inquisitor's point of view, or he's laying down all the charges. And you get the sense that 
this is actually his charge, that this is his struggle, that these are damnations that he's come up with on his own and struggling with faith. And I think that makes it all the more important that at the end, he's turned around by the kiss from Jesus. And then the kiss from Alyosha. Yeah. Remember that Alyosha kisses him, kisses Ivan as Ivan's about to leave, which I think is great. Yeah, so he, Ivan's mirrored as a Grand Inquisitor, really, in his own story. He's struggling just like the Grand Inquisitor was. He's obviously lost some sort of belief in the structure of, um, of religion. But he's, yeah, but he still obviously cares about people. Okay, here it is. I found it. This is on 313 of uh, the Brothers Karamazov here. I repeat, tomorrow you will see the obedient herds at the first sign from me hurry to heap coals in the fire beneath the stake at which I shall have you burned, because by coming here you have made our task more difficult. For if anyone has ever deserved our fire, it is you. I shall have you burned tomorrow. Ivan stopped. His emotion had gradually increased as he spoke, reaching its highest point at the end. But when he stopped, he suddenly smiled. And Alyosha, who at first had listened in silence, had also become very agitated toward the end. He looked as if he wanted to interrupt his brother and was restraining himself with great difficulty. Now when Ivan stopped, words gushed from him as if he could no longer hold them back. But it makes no sense. Your poem is no disparagement of Jesus as you intended. It is in praise of him. And who will accept what you say of freedom in the way you want it to be understood? Is that the way the Russian Orthodox Church interprets it? You know, he's saying that it represents only the worst there is in Catholicism. It's inquisitors and Jesuits. And then later Ivan comes back and he says, well, no, okay, if you want to say that it's just a bunch of people trying to get power, that's certainly not it. Do you really think that it's just people trying to get material gain? Why couldn't it be that there's an Illuminati within the church of people who know that they're lying, maybe don't even believe in God, but are doing an orchestrated effort to keep all the people in the world together who might otherwise have free will and just go mad? It takes one, right? Yeah, this one. You know, he says, why couldn't there be a character like my Grand Inquisitor? You know, why is it impossible that there could be one such person that wanted to almost be a supervillain or an antihero? You know, he's also really sympathetic with this Grand Inquisitor. As much as you know that he's done cruel and awful things, you know, uh, metting out burnings on the stake, you know, he also talks about his love for humanity and what it's taken to wrangle just the chaos and horror of free will that's been left on the earth for 15 centuries without a god to come down and turn stones into bread to you know heal people as as god should if he wanted people to follow him or could perhaps but won't he's doing triage isn't isn't he saying that's what the church has been doing he's saying the church sided with the devil right that's one of my favorite parts of this we went with your we went with the tempter he explicitly says that because he says um, like eight centuries ago, which I mean, the, the timeline was founding of the Catholic Church, right? Forget, I can't find that line. He specifically mentions the founding of the church was when they sided with the devil. It's funny because when you're, you know, I went to church for 18 years, mass for 18 years, and they always talk about how Jesus founded the church on Peter. You are the rock. You know, Peter was right. the first pope. Peter was the rock. But I, there's one thing. I, I have a different translation than you guys. <laughs> the one that I sent out. What do you have? I'm not, I'm not taking it from the book. I've got that one that I put on the website that's by, yeah. that's by Madame Blavatsky, <laughs> the famed theosophist, which I love. And the reason that I thought that he wasn't, like, he never had intended to burn him was because 
at the very end of mine, it says, go, go and return no more. Do not come again. Never, never. And he lets him out into the dark night. The prisoner vanishes. And then Ivan asks him, you know, I'm sorry, Alyosha asks him, and the old man. And Ivan says, the, the kiss burns his heart, but the old man remains firm in his own ideas and unbelief. And you together with him, you too, despairing, despairingly exclaimed Alyosha, while Ivan burst into a still louder fit of laughter. So I felt like there was ne- there was never a time like he was so angry at him. You know, I I remember being a kid and my dog died, and I just thought, oh, fuck God, this is just you know, if there's really a God, then he's just an asshole. That dogs live fifteen years and we love them so much. You know, <laughs> I just thought like that's just so wrong. <clears throat> and so I can I can see that you get him in the room. Is if all this stuff is true, you're a dick. So. Well, yeah. I mean, it makes me think of that line, right? If God is good, there is no God. I mean, that's the great, great conundrum, the great struggle that everybody has had in life. People who are faithful and people who aren't. How can you make sense of a world where there's such horror and destruction and then still have a God? I mean, that's the great struggle. I like the idea that the Inquisitor is just really pissed at him for being so irresponsible. I used to have this Jewish friend and she was so funny. And she said, she was talking about Jesus one day. She said to me, he was a good boy. If he ever knew the amount of trouble he was going to cause, he never would have done it. (laughs) I thought, oh yeah, he was a good boy. (laughs) I loved his mom. But there is that sense, right? When you live in this world, there is that, you know, you get that sense of it's incredibly irresponsible to tell people that they're free when in fact they're bound by toil. They're bound by, you know, there are all sorts of things that bind us. Our human condition binds us. And it is kind of irresponsible to say, you know, just, it's just all about love, babe. Just go on out there and love everybody and it'll be all right. That's what he's saying. It's like it says here, again, this is in the standalone version of the Grand Inquisitor, so I don't know where. There's no page. It's in the middle of it. (laughs) And it just says, for the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to have something to live for. Yeah. Without a stable conception of the object of life, man would not consent to go on living and would rather destroy himself than remain on earth, though he had bread in abundance. I read the entire thing because it was such a one-way conversation and because of the point of dispute between the Grand Inquisitor and God or Jesus. It reminded me of like Freud, you know, psychoanalyzing Jesus and telling him how like he has human psyche wrong. Like you think this, (laughs) but really this is how humans work. You're really messed it up. Like we're going to fix this. We're on our way. (laughs) Just, you know, stay out of the way. Yeah, I kept thinking about the the freedom issue too, because I mean, this is supposed to be one of the foundational sort of examples of existentialist literature, right? I don't know if anybody knows their Sartre well, but I kept thinking about his radical freedom. And I know that he has a way that he thinks he gets around like biological determinism and things like that, but I don't know what it is. And that's always been an issue for me with that. I remember reading it and it's how he conceives of the self as far as whenever you retroactively think about yourself, it's already a past version of yourself. It doesn't actually get it what this conscious self is. You can never fully grasp it because it's always thrusting into the future. So even though you have a historical record of yourself, which is itself imperfect because you only choose parts of your memory that you think of when you think of yourself, that's still not bound by the endless possibilities of this, you know, conscious force of yourself thrusting into the future, but you could change it anytime. 
And you're applying this to this how, Daniel? Well, I just, I've never found that part of existentialism convincing. And the freedom that, because I, I'm more sympathetic to what Mary was saying a minute ago, I think the, that we are bound by, you know, our carnality and our psyche and um, external circumstances in ways that really you, you can't get around, I don't think. I mean, at least I'm not convinced that you can, regardless of whatever, whatever philosophical maneuvering you want to do. I think that's that really is binding. So I, I was just interested in that freedom aspect of this story. And one of the things that in existentialist sort of the existentialist notion of freedom that was difficult for me to understand for a long time when they talked about anxiety and things like that. I mean, I get the anxiety of not knowing what you want to do with your life and, you know, what direction you want to go and to constantly have to make choices. But I, th I think it was kind of a revelation for me when I finally understood, like, no, 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 this is also an anxiety about, like, what you are and the I there. And if freedom really is this radical thing where you're choosing everything and you're, you're abandoned to freedom and you have to choose you and you have no essential essence, then that's a much more, it's a much scarier thing to have to think about. You know, it's a much scarier thing to have to, to not have anything you can fall back on at any given time or to be able to, you know, refer to some unchanging self. I mean, that's a really sort of, it really is a radical notion, but I'm not sure it's one I find convincing. I was just wondering about you guys' why, thoughts. Why wouldn't you find it convincing? I mean, that's kind of his argument, the Grand Inquisitor's argument, is that that kind of freedom, that kind of defining oneself without any guidance, without any structure, can't be done. Man doesn't have the ability to do that without self-destructing. Well, because we're already constructed out of things from the past, right? I mean, we're already constructed out of oh, all God, these forces. Oh, God, don't talk to me that... about the past. <laughs> Well, it's because I'm writing this long paper about it. So anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Say it again. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I'd yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Well, your that's a whole sounded... other issue. But you're saying that you can't, you don't really believe that concept of existentialism because of... Well, I think that that space of radical freedom, any basis you might have for making choices in that space is going, if you investigate that basis, you're going to find that it's constructed, I think, by things that have already happened in the past. Contingent things, you know, any any basis there for having a preference, you're going to find that that's made out of things that have already happened, a structure that, you know, it's it's in the past, it, it's it belongs to other things outside of you. I just think you, you're never going to find this. If there's a choice to be made, and if there's anything to have a preference about that choice, then I think you're looking at it, something essential then. Well, I mean, I think what he's saying here is that man can't do that. To me, I saw it really like this is we're dealing with a five-year-old, you know, and the Grand Inquisitor is the parent. Man can't do it, doesn't have the function, the ability, the strength, the power. In a way, I kind of agree with him in regard to what you're bringing up in terms of the past, because there are reasons why we can't access the past and we can't handle it and manage it. But what he's talking about here is that man doesn't have the ability to do it. And that's why freedom is deathly to him. Doesn't have the ability to choose can't choose. You know, okay, you got the five-year-old. No, you're not supposed to eat that piece of dirt. So here, eat this lollipop. They don't know that, but I know that. So, I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. We're here to create this structure for him. We're here to tell him, okay, believe in this, even though we're in cahoots with the devil. We're going to give, give you this little wafer, 
at the end of the mass and drink a little bit of this wine and you're all part of it. You're all part of the whole Christ thing, the whole myth. And it's going to make you a better person. It's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day, um, a friend of mine who unfortunately had a stroke a couple of years ago. And he goes to church religiously. <laughs> Sorry. But he goes to church regularly. All right. right here, I'm going to add a little uh, top hat. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, I was telling you about this story that I was reading and that our discussion uh, coming up. And he says, well, what is it? I said, well, it's really a, a argument or really a statement or a struggle between the church and Jesus, because, and the church is saying to Jesus, we don't need you. We've never needed you. And I remember the look of shock and awe and like devastation. Like I thought the guy was going to start crying. I mean, I was like, whoa, okay, don't worry. It's just a story. He couldn't handle that idea of what the church doesn't need. God, what are you talking about? That idea of freedom and chaos and confusion. That's what the Grand Inquisitor is saying. Man gets ill, deals with all of these horrors in life and these mountains that you have to, you know, struggle over. And you need the church. I like the you brought up the metaphor between the church and and a parent and a child. It's really accurate in the context of the story. A parent to a kid is this sense of authority that they're talking about. It's also a person that you can rebel against and like go against your parents' wishes. But then there's a structure for attaining forgiveness from your parents. And then they're a source of mysterious knowledge and they know everything that's right. <laughs> and this is the way the, the church has been structured in the Grand Inquisitor's mind, right? They're allowing the people to sin and they're providing a structure to right. allow that yeah. sin to be forgiven. Come into this little area and tell us all about your sins. Yeah. Well, but in, and in reality, what he truly feels is that in doing so, he is actually giving them their absolution and taking on their sins himself. And so that's his, you know, he's making a bigger sacrifice than Jesus ever did because Jesus was going to go be at the right hand of God when he died. But the Grand Inquisitor had to give it up to the devil, had to get in bed with the devil and do all these things because he so loves humanity that he's willing to actually give his soul to the devil to save humanity, to give humanity something. Because remember, humanity, because Jesus is is so selective about who's actually going to be admitted to paradise, the Grand Inquisitor knows that most of the people, the common man, are not going to have salvation. And so he gives them something to live for. He gives them a way to live in some sort of peace because he actually believes that what they'll have in the afterlife is damnation. And it's all illusion and he knows it is. I think that he actually believes in an afterlife. I think he actually believes that that's what, Jesus the Christ. Inquisitor. Yeah. I just think that he believes that it's going to be really shitty for most people. He'd have to believe in an afterlife if he, if he was going to believe that this was really Jesus. But he also believes that, you know, what Jesus has set humanity up for is, is really terrible for humanity. He's making a bigger sacrifice than Jesus ever did. Just like the devil, he knew that, fine, you've got 40 days in the desert and you've been tempted by the devil and you're going to die, but you have guaranteed access, you know, all access pass. <laughs> I think that the whole thing with Christianity is that you will have had a moment when you feel when you're actually in the light of God and then that's taken away from you. You don't need fire and brimstone. You don't need any of that. All you need is the absence of that pure love of God and that will be agony for eternity that he takes it away way. God is withholding just <laughs> just in case you are keeping score. God's like one of God's big emotional problems is that he's a withholder. <laughs> 
you will suffer by my absence, bitch. So, you know, when you think, when you think of it that way, it's like, yeah, you know, he really is making a bigger sacrifice than Jesus ever made because he believes in his immortal soul. It's so difficult to keep up with, with all of the denominations. I mean, exactly what uh, constitutes damnation and what qualifies you as being saved. I mean, when you talk to people who would self-recognize as Christians on the street, you get so many different versions of this. And half of the time these days, most Christians that I meet anyway, are, are they're fairly lax in their uh, scholarship about their own religion, you might say. Um, a lot of it just seems to, you know, they kind of wing it. And here's my interpretation, you know, and this is kind of what I believe. And it's, it's usually just, you know, sort of some level of buoyancy of what's comfortable for them to believe. And why not, really? I mean, if that really is fundamentally what's at the bottom of the whole thing, why not monkey wrench with it yourself and add your own, you know, adaptations that work for you? It's, it's very difficult to put the circumscribing parameters around what is the Christian doctrine of being saved and being damned. And well, you can bet that the five of us will have adjoining lakes of fire. <laughs> Don't worry about it. There'll be, a, there'll be a philosophical fiction section in hell. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to have a jet ski. <laughs> right. I'm looking forward to it. I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. <laughs> a, lava, a, a jet ski for lava. Brimstone. Well, I have a couple of passages here that I'd like to string together. I think it covers a bit of what we've been talking about. I think that one of the interesting things, we've mentioned the devil, and I think that, that Ivan's conception of the devil is very interesting and specific and maybe a little bit different from just a bad dude that we might have a perception of. He, he says this about the devil. He calls it the wise and dreaded spirit of self-destruction and non-existence. And he says, that spoke to you in the desert. And we learned from the books that he tried to tempt you. Was he really trying to tempt you, though? Could anything be truer than what he revealed to you in his three questions that you rejected, questions that were called temptations in the books? It was precisely in those three questions that the miracle lay. And this gets to the anguish that anyone can feel now or that, that non-existence and that self-destruction. Here's a few more things. There's nothing a free man is so anxious to do as to find something to worship. He says, the great concern of these miserable creatures is not that every individual should find something to worship, but that they should all find something to worship in common, that they all believe and can worship in common. It is essential that it should be in common. And then he says, he talks about the agony that people are left in, and he says that there will be centuries of chaos. He's talking talking about the centuries after Christ left. Men will be guided by their own unbridled thinking, by their science, and by their cannibal instincts. For since they started building their Tower of Babel without us, they will end up devouring each other. But it will be just at that moment that the beast will crawl to us, lick our feet, and spatter them with tears of blood. And then he talks about now that they've finished making the church. Then that man who has always loved his fellow men suddenly realizes how puny is the moral satisfaction of achieving a triumph of will when he's convinced that millions of other children of God have been created as a sort of mockery. They will never be able to cope with the freedom that has been forced upon them. These wretched rebels will never grow into giants who will complete the construction of the Tower of Babel. I think that the Grand Inquisitor is taking up a kind of new atheism, a world in which God's gone for good and can be counted out. 
and what are they left with and what should they make something of? Because they're still left with the existential dread, the spirit of the devil, and there's no solution for it, apparently. And even if there was something uh, like free bread from the sky, there's no one to give it anymore. These people have to make their bread. And that's what makes them heroic in the Inquisitor's eyes, is that they're the ones providing now. They've stepped in. And what the hell is Jesus doing back here? Right. And there's this one. For who can rule men if not he who holds their conscience and their bread in his hands? We have taken the sword of Caesar and in taking it, of course, have rejected thee and followed him. I think we're all, by the way, I just think we're all reading different translations. I'm reading Constance Garnett. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one I've got. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading Constance Garnett. That was Constance Garnett. Okay. The one I just, what I just quoted was from Constance Garnett. It's different from Nathan's, though. At least my page numbers are not matching up. The one Nathan just read, the, the line I had that Nathan had read, but then the beast will crawl to us and lick our feet and spatter them with tears of blood. And we shall sit upon the beast and raise the cup and on it will be written the mystery. But then and only then the reign of peace and happiness will come for men. I'm just thinking, connecting that line to the overarching, I forget where it happens in the book, but that famous line, if God is dead, is not everything permitted? Like the radical thing that Dostoevsky is really saying is the fact that God is there in existence and the fact that there's this structure of religion is actually the thing that allows men to live lives uh, and to go about and sin because there's a structure to have that sin forgiven. Whereas if God is not, if God doesn't exist, then really nothing is permitted because if God doesn't exist, that means that people only have this conception of right and wrong, these hints provided by the gospel as far as how to act. But it's completely contingent upon them to figure that out and to do the right thing. And there's nothing, no structure for them to have their sins, you know, expiated or forgiven. And that this science and thought that he talks about in that line is really not enough that, you know, we're excited about the new possibilities of new atheism and science and all that, but it's not enough for people. You can't make value judgments. Is that right? Yeah, you're left with your radical freedom. What you were saying that, you know, people don't really have that. Your thoughts, your decisions are contingent upon something else. And what Dostoevsky is saying is that it has to be contingent upon this, this perfect unity because that's how humans are. We want everything to be the same. We want there to be unity. Yeah, and he, he says this too. The mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. Without a concrete idea of what he is living for, man would refuse to live, would rather exterminate himself than remain on this earth, even if bread were scattered all around him. And then, talking about the church, they'll tell us the secrets that torment most their consciousnesses. They will tell us everything, and we shall solve all their problems. And they will trust our solutions completely, because they will be rid of the terrible worry and the frightening torment that now, today, they know when they have to decide for themselves how to act. And so there's something like, there's this idea about, um, there is a construction, this structure, this institutional system that is around, yet it didn't come from nowhere. There's problems that it's dealing with, and that's where it gets its life and its power. It's got the heat energy of chaos to form and do practices, and I think that's where its lifeblood is, is this existential anxiety, and there being a release valve for that. So what would Dostoevsky make of, of the modern church with, you know, basically, you know, a haven for pedophiles? Sorry if that offends anyone. Um, 
you know, everybody loves the new Pope. I was a little bit like freaked out. You know, people like, oh, you know, the Pope wants to forgive women who've had abortions. And then you read what he says about it. And it's basically like, oh, they're just confused. Really? So not like I want to forgive you because I just realized it actually is your body and your choice. No, it's because somebody tried to talk you into it. Your feeble little mind didn't realize you were making such a huge murderous mistake. Really? This is the guy? This is the guy you love? Sorry, I'm not buying it. Not my, not my. Well, I think that Dostoevsky doesn't come down for the church either at the end. I think that there's that kiss really obliterates quite a lot. You know, I think the anxiety that uh, Jean Baptiste felt in the fall that maybe you really could be like Jesus, that maybe there is some action way of living. You know, he, his answer was the kiss. And that is a terrible upset, even for someone who should be the most rooted in his beliefs as the Grand Inquisitor. That that little act threw everything off. He went from wanting to burn him to uh, helping him release. And, and, he, and yet he couldn't leave behind his life. You know, all he wanted him to do is leave. And Alyosha kisses Ivan at the end, right? And putting the plagiarism issue aside, wouldn't you say, if we look at Ivan and Alyosha, that Ivan is Jesus and Alyosha is the Grand Inquisitor or the church? Well, because Ivan is having a existential crisis himself. He's not yet 30, but he's considering that uh, to be the closing down of his life, that he might as well just throw down the cup of life and live in uh, debauchery and just go for it. He's uh, aimless. What is that what happens when you approach that point in your life that you live in debauchery and you question you know, the church and you question all, all of the values you've lived with in your, your entire life? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Happened to me at 16. He waited. <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, is that what you're saying, uh, Nathan? Well, I think that he's confronting, you know, what it is to live a life. I think that he's also got the devil in the desert, you know? He's got self-destruction and non-existence on his mind. So as a result, he questions the orth- this orthodox church function in his life, structure in his life, and writes this incredible, remarkable, profound short story about how the church functions in terms of the devil and evil and goodness in contrast to, to God. So what what exactly is, is he doing then? I mean, aside from questioning everything in, in his life, I mean, it's incredible what he's written here or come up with here. It can't just be, okay, well, I'm struggling with all of these things. It can't just merely be that. You might be able to look at it kind of as, I don't think a struggle is out of the question. I mean, it's just a very articulate one. You could kind of see the problems that he clearly sees with this theology, I think. And then, but then on the other, the debauchery that Ivan is struggling with is the other pole. You know, you may find that everything is permissible is not an appealing conclusion on one hand, but then also find that you have some serious reservations and doubts about this sort of theology. It seems like this story and Ivan's dilemma and maybe Dostoevsky's dilemma is the tension between those things and the attempt to kind of reconcile both of those Well, I don't think it's going to reconcile it, but let me ask you this. Why does Ivan slash Dostoevsky keep Jesus essentially silent through this whole thing? I mean, it's not like Jesus didn't have anything to say. In this particular discussion or uh, situation, Jesus says nothing until the very last end where he gives a kiss to the church, essentially. Yeah, and I felt like that kiss was much more ambiguous. I don't know. What did you guys think? I mean, I'm not sure that I, I share the view that the kiss was really... Think it was like the Godfather kiss? 
the way I read the kiss was like Jesus sat there, he listened, and then he thought like, man, this guy really has a good point, but you know, and like, uh, I forgive you for what you're about to do and I'm out of here. And I think if the story was to go on, Jesus wouldn't have gone back to the crowd and kept healing people. He would have like beelined it back to heaven. Yeah, I thought that that when he left, he left for good. I never thought for a second that the the Inquisitor was going to burn him. I really thought that it's like, oh, I finally got him here. I am going to scold him. I am going to give him the scolding that his, you know, his dad will never give him. Because the incredible act of irresponsibility of supposedly knowing the human heart and giving them the ideas and the commandments that he gave was, you know, kind of the ultimate act of of irresponsibility. You don't know humans. If you think that humans can do this, you don't know humans. And how dare you, you know, come in and do this and then leave it to us and then come back and start healing them again. No. Yeah, but why did he make it so that Jesus didn't respond to this attack? One thing that I think is interesting, because this book seems like it's very self-conscious about its status as a piece of literature, and Ivan's talking about, uh, you know, the poem, whether it really is a poem, and, you know, he never wrote it down, and so that sort of framed the whole thing in my mind as self-conscious about the medium. So Jesus not actually speaking to me sort of seemed like maybe it was self-consciously avoiding a sort of sophistry. And to make his only real action in the story an action rather than a sort of uh, expatiation like the Grand Inquisitor sort of signaled maybe to me that that was a clue. That action itself or, or living rather than you know, explaining is a clue maybe to something in in Dostoevsky's mind. Yeah, and the difference between faith and going to church every Sunday. And maybe it's arrogance. To answer your question, Laura, I think the reason Jesus didn't speak is because the Grand Inquisitor explicitly told him not to. And the reason he told him not to is because, you know, they've pretty much been as a practicing hermeneutic since, you know, Jesus stopped talking and have been trying to build up this edifice, this edifice to really save souls on earth. But the structure of the church is not to find some perfect conception of truth and perfect conception of what Jesus is or God. It is structure to save these lives of these imperfect beings. I mean, there's the line, canst thou have simply come to the elect and for the elect? But if so, it is a mystery and we cannot understand it. And if it is a mystery, we too have a right to preach a mystery and to teach them that it's not the free judgment of their hearts, not love that matters, but a mystery which they must follow blindly, even against their conscience. So we have done. So really, he doesn't care about what Jesus has to say about what is, you know, truth. They have this edifice built to save people. Yeah, yeah, but it could also be that he's he's afraid of what Jesus may say, that he needs to keep in control of Jesus and keep that power. Because well, because no matter what he says, it's going to disrupt the activity of the church. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> when you look at the John Gilgood thing, and you really should, it's amazing when you watch the difference between the way Gilgood moves around and talks and behaves in comparison to Jesus, who just sits there just sits there. He doesn't move, doesn't talk until boom, at the end he kisses him and leaves. Yeah, that's very powerful. I mean, I think that, I mean, for me, what I see, my, my read of this is that you've got this man pulled in and the Grand Inquisitor sitting him down and they even discuss at the beginning, like maybe it's, you know, not even really him, but for all extents and purposes, this is Jesus. Let's just, let's just take it at that. And he's going to address him this way. He even says, I don't care if you're a likeness of him. Maybe you're not the original or you're just the newest incarnation, whatever. 
you're Jesus and I've got something to say to Jesus or to him. And, you know, he rails, just rails and rails and has all these enmity built up towards him or just this hatred. Yeah. And yet he's completely turned around by the actual life of this person, by the actual, the grace of Jesus. And it seems, it seems as though he was wrong all along that all of his ideas that his, you know, fixed ideas about Jesus and God and are turned around by actually being in the presence of this grace. And that, you know, maybe that example is, can be instructive. I mean, he changed his mind about burning him. Although if I think Mary's, interpretation too that maybe he didn't maybe he never really intended to is, is also possible but that that's the thing like we don't know right so it's not it wasn't clear to me exactly what the impression that that kiss made was <laughs> he let him go even though he said he wasn't going to but beyond that we don't really get any more information about what his state of mind is after that incident there's also the idea that, you know, he's been, he rails about mystery, about not, first of all, if, if you're God, why would you defend yourself? It's just, it, the whole thing is preposterous, right? God doesn't defend himself. God is perfection. There's also the whole idea of the ineffable and, and you know, you don't speak it. You know, you do, God is an unspeakable thing. So there's, I thought about that too, but I felt like he didn't speak because Ivan didn't actually want to add to what Jesus said. And it, it would have made the story unbelievable if you put words in Jesus's mouth. His character is completely present. You know, the, the Jesus as character is completely present, though, without adding to it. Right. As if as Jesus is supposed to be. Right. He's made cannibals of us all. We eat his body every Sunday. <laughs> Jesus is supposed to be alive and present. I mean, he says it in the story in a different way in each of our translations, but so you've turned us into cannibals. He is always present. You know, if this is what you believe, then that's it. And he never speaks. He never spe- he's never spoken since he since he left and everybody's been waiting for him. So he can't speak. I'm just saying as a as a device for the character in the story writing a story. That device was perfect and there was there was no way that he could have used a story in which Jesus did sp- a modern Jesus did speak. Right, but back to the metaphor idea of if but for Jesus's existence, the grand inquisitor wouldn't exist. Church wouldn't exist. Well, I really feel strongly that this, that the character of Jesus says something very important here that by not saying anything. Yes. Yes. I think that's, um, the manner in which it's important. However, like the import is that it's really possible. The grand inquisitor, you know, sets up that it's, it's really impossible. And I think that there's distinctions to be made between Jesus's concept and uh, how it's been created through the church uh, so that there's this idea that, you know, Jesus is actually God and, you know, uh, that there's a God outside of uh, Jesus. And yet it seems like he's a man, you know, but I, I say that and then I take it back because uh, he raised the dead at the beginning of the story. You know, there's something supernatural as well going on. And so that's, I, so I'm a little bit, you know, uh, concerned like Alyosha was like, is this just a fantasy? If there is uh, no God and you're trying to tell a story about that and you're using the characters and, you know, whatever, would that have the same metaphysical implications if there really was supernaturalism? I mean, if Jesus came back and resurrected the dead, how could you doubt that? 
you know, what would there be for you to do but to just accept? I mean, I guess he could burn him alive, um, yet he doesn't. And I think that he's moved by the action of being Jesus-like. I don't even think it's clear that it's Jesus exactly. I think that it's someone who is like that, and that's a challenge. So that's the other thing I see with this story. It seems like he's saying, you know, man just can't do, you know, this and this and this, yet it appears like there is a man that can, and that throws a wrench into it. The first thing that the Grand Inquisitor says is, um, is it thou, thou, but receiving no answer, he adds at once, don't answer, be silent. What canst thou say indeed? I know too well what thou would say, and thou hast no right to add anything to what thou hast said of old. The thing that, I mean, this confuses me more now that I've read it, because I, well, what was he going to say? I don't know what he was going to say. What does the Grand Inquisitor think that Jesus is, is going to say? Well, and what does he need to say? You know, I mean, that's the other, like, you know, the Grand Inquisitor is the one that has something to say. You know, like Jesus not try, is not trying to come and make small talk. You know, he was grabbed and locked in a room. And then later this guy came and had a lot that he wanted to get off his chest. And he let him. He sat there and he... Yeah, but wouldn't you, if, that, if someone did that to you, wouldn't you want to defend yourself? Yeah, but I might not be Christ-like by doing so. <laughs> well, it's almost like a stalemate, right? Because I do think that, yeah, so he, he comes in, he doesn't speak, but it seems like that's an affirmation of freedom, if it's anything, right? Because whatever the reason is, an answer is not forthcoming. So we're left pretty much where we were before. We still have to choose, we still have to decide and interpret and keep going forward in time. And the Grand Inquisitor's response is interesting now that I think about it, because he immediately says, like Cesario was quoting, uh, you know, okay, well, don't say anything. And it, it's almost so quick that you think maybe it's a sort of that attitude of you don't say anything. Fine, have it your way. I can play that game too. And he chooses to take that as an affirmation of his position. And then he goes on to make his arguments and everything. And it's, it's reminiscent of that scene with the devil too, because the whole time, I mean, if you, if you watch like the Passion of the Christ or something like that, you know, it definitely, you get the sense in that scene that the devil is trying to get a rise out of Jesus. You know, he's trying to get a reaction. And it almost seems like the Grand Inquisitor's in that same kind of position, you know, he's, he's trying to get him, trying to provoke him in some way, and he can't get him to break character and get some explanation, which maybe is what we're all trying to do, right? You know, get some kind of uh, explanation for what the hell is going on, if there is anybody there to explain. When Jesus came on the scene, he started immediately, people were touching him and he was started curing the blind and raising the dead. <laughs> Grand Inquisitor's whole talk was about like, hey, you rejected this stuff. You had the option to show mankind all these miracles, have political unity on earth, turn stone into bread. You had your chance and you said, no, we took that. So, But he also said to Jesus, you know, okay, you had your chance. But at the same time, he's saying, the way you set it up, man couldn't handle it anyway. You needed us, and now we're in charge. Well, and I think that he was adding, too, that he sets Jesus up. It's like, yeah, you could turn stones into bread, and you could perform miracles, but I know why you didn't just do that. You didn't want it to be that the person with the bread had the power. It had to be free. You couldn't just say that you had to love me because I could do things for you. You had to choose to, and that made it that made it difficult because you could have just, you know, made everybody happy all the time. You could have just brought a kingdom of happiness and total control and made man feel good and full bellied all the time. And you didn't do that. And so we're left with suffering. So given suffering, how is it that we're supposed to participate in the, you know, life that we should like feed us first and then ask for virtue? That that line is what I was just looking at. Yeah. Which is interesting too. I think now that you mentioned that, because it's like, 
if a level playing field is what's important, it seems like there'd be more than one way to do that. Couldn't we have that, yeah, without all the suffering, without everybody? I mean, couldn't we just start at a place of everybody's provided for, and then they still have that moment where they have to choose? You could not even have bread be in the equation at all. But why is it important that Jesus, you know, that the good be chosen under the stress of hunger and pain and suffering? And, you know, to what degree must those things be present before the choice is validated? He says about the church and himself, so he's willing to use lies and deception to lead men consciously to their death and destruction, while at the same time deceiving them so that they will not see where they are being led so that, at least on the way, these wretched, blind creatures may think they are happy. And so, you know, it's not the perfect way out either. It's just a panacea for the human condition. It's a, in the meantime, there's still going to be ultimately uh, uh, nothing at the end. It's, it's a lie. And ironically, the lie is that they're working in the name of God, who that they are actively realize is not, you know, part of the equation any longer, and that it's just them. They've got the kingdom of earth in their hands. And that's what they're, you know, they're making it work. They're just, it seems like they were just making it pass. And the Grand Inquisitor is so upset and enraged that they're left to do the work. But then also, you know, damn it, we did it. We really did it. We're not done yet. We're not there, but we'll get there is what he says. We will have a basis for universal happiness eventually. There's going to be a lot of suffering, but we're going to get everybody onto the same page and we're going to rule this thing the way that we never were able to before or the way that we might have been promised if you had just come down and ruled us yourself. But you left us with freedom and now uh, we're in a pickle. And so we need to take that freedom away from everybody and met out the action. We'll be the ones that tell you what to do. We'll rule over you and take away that anxiety. And yet, you know, the end of the story, it seems like that's all thrown off, that that's he saw how flimsy that entire scheme really is. You mean after Jesus kissing him? I think that he was really convinced of things. Actually, I don't think that he was very convinced at all. I think that's why he had to speak with him. I think that he was venting out. I think that he was expressing his own self-doubt to Jesus and Jesus in sympathy of seeing all that kissed him. I think the Grand Inquisitor in expressing such anger really was angry at himself, maybe more than he was at Jesus. Yeah, no, I think that that's, I think that that's on. I think that that's on point. I feel like he, he loved him at the end. You know, he wanted to spare him. Yeah. He was just so angry at, at life. And, and this goes to Ivan as well. You know, I see Alyosha as Jesus in this and Ivan as the Grand Inquisitor. The story is the Inquisition. It, it's the question seeking. What's all this about? And I think that he is a sympathetic character in there. And it's Jesus. And it's this notion of man that he's still holding on to and that he connects and manifests with his brother, Alyosha. And Alyosha is talking with him after the story, you know, and uh, Ivan saying, I'm going to leave soon. And, you know, I'm getting ready to throw everything off and I don't know what's going to happen, you know. And, and Alyosha says this bitterly. How? will you be able to live until then and love all those things with the hell that is in your heart and in your head? No, you are going to join them now or else you'll kill yourself because you won't be able to stand it. You mean you plan to drown yourself in debauchery to disintegrate your soul by rotting it? Is that what you want? How will you manage those ideas of yours? Do you mean you'll act as if everything is permitted? For you feel that's true. Whatever you do is all right. 
He senses the Inquisitor's uh, suffering, and I think Alyosha senses Ivan's suffering. That's what Alyosha was saying to Ivan. You are stepping into a world of unbridled freedom without any checks and balances. Do you really think you can survive that? Let me tell you, as a parent, again, and having dealt with teenagers, it's the same idea. You have to let them go, but you can't. These kids walking into this world of outrageous freedom that they've never seen before, and they don't Mm. know how to handle it. Yeah. Also between... Ivan and Alyosha and Jesus and the Inquisitor is, I think, um, I mean, Jesus represents this personal love for a specific person, a real person, whereas the Inquisitor is sacrificing lives, right? He burned 100 people the other day for the love of man, you know, capital. He's unable to connect with a specific person, maybe until Jesus gives him that kiss and he realizes, you know, he gains sympathy for a person rather than people. Yeah, there was something there that didn't quite add up to me because I, I, I noticed that difference between the individual, the idea that the individual was important and mattered and individual salvation and the utilitarian logic that the Grand Inquisitor and the church seem to be putting forward. And especially if the Grand Inquisitor is a believer, I mean, if he really does believe this is Jesus and believe that the afterlife is, is out there, then at best he's managing this tiny interval of earthly presence in a certain, you know, for a very limited amount of time and then by a utilitarian logic. So if you put it like that, it does seem, some of his claims seem extremely boastful for what he's really actually accomplishing. I mean, by some standards, perhaps it's a grand thing. I mean, the church is big and powerful, but when you put it in the context of really actually being a believer, pretty minuscule. And so in that sense, a lot of his statements would seem a lot more hypocritical, I think. The Inquisitors. Yeah. I mean, being said to Jesus, I think about, you know, being in his position, saying those things, knowing that he's making these claims about only for certain people for a very limited amount of time before they're either going to go on to be damned or saved. Right. It's it's really not to claim all that much. And what about the hundreds on the stakes? Right. I mean, those are those are the sacrifices for, you know, the basic feeling of being able to get by that all of that is buying for the population, you know, because it's not as if those people, those heretics are being burned. And if you, I mean, if you know anything about the Spanish Inquisition and the conditions around those times, which I mean, I know very little, but I don't, people were not living high on the hog. No, <laughs> And even weren't. if there was a bit of order that came from that, it really wasn't that much. I mean, you weren't buying that much. I mean, you were buying just the barest shred that kept anarchy at bay. Well, I wonder if that's not an enterprise on its own, then, you know, anything better than total chaos. And even then, too, I mean, what what is the value of that? Because this is the fundamental difference, right, between that atheist existentialism and the Christian, is that it's the value of life on Earth. You know, on, on, on the one pole, it's just that place where you make that choice. Isn't life on earth in the church, everything you're doing is really for the afterlife in order to get into Well, I think that there's a spiritual understanding of the afterlife that may not be the Roman Catholic or the uh, Russian Orthodox. However, I think there may be a reading of the kingdom as some kind of lived in place that's earthly as well. That's a matter of the spiritual existence on earth and not necessarily the individual body getting by. 
many times in the Bible, it says it's harder to get into heaven than going through the eye of a needle. So he's saying that billions of people are not going to get there. He's going to make the utilitarian calculation by at least giving them earthly happiness, by at least making them think that they'll get there. You know, nothing they would have done otherwise would have got them to heaven. <laughs> yes. Well, here's the thing about that, though. So like, yeah, you get the utilitarian calculus and everybody imagines that they're going to heaven. A couple know that it's not really going to happen, but you've still got life and order on earth, yet you still have suffering and misery and burning people at the cross. And is that the only way? It, it seems that, that the Inquisitors put to another alternative, which is going back to something, maybe something that you could live and practice, some kind of active compassion that you could live. And that would have an effect as well that maybe saves people. That's the feeling I get. It's like this guy is railing that it was so what? difficult to live a life and he's pissed. He thought that maybe there was an easier way out or like, why didn't you just come down and throw magic everywhere? You know, why couldn't it have been easier? Dostoevsky is clearly a very principled as far as having this edifice of a church or edifice of religion to guide his life and uh, to base his life around. I take it that none of us are particularly religious. You know, how do we live our lives? I, I think like mm -hmm. the way I get by is just by not thinking about it too much. Like, I don't know what I base my, I, if I thought about it briefly, it's, you know, some weird conception of happiness that I have in the back of my mind. But I bet if I probed that any further, it'd be just a lot of bullshit. <laughs> See, that's, that's the thing that gives me doubts about this radical conception of freedom, because I think that if you investigate consciousness, it doesn't actually work that way, um, because it, it's just not possible to live in that vigilant way. I think, at least to my understanding, what I find is that you can envision attention more like a, a spotlight, and you get to shine it around on things, and then while it's focused on that, you have a choice there. But even in choosing to pay attention to that, you have this whole other menu of things that are being ignored. There's no question that certain things are going to be ignored while you're attending to other things. So there's always going to be choices that can't be made. You're, you're not going to be free. And you can't even always choose what you're going to pay attention to because we get distracted. I mean, we know that just phenomenologically, right? Yeah, but I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what your problem is. <laughs> How do you get through life then? Is it simply just ignorance is bliss? Is that it? People don't like choice. That's true. But does that mean that we have choice just because we don't like it? I mean, certainly sometimes we're faced with choices and we flee from that. But there are also times when we simply react. And I don't think you can always say that we chose to do so. Well, I think whether it actually exists in the purity of form that you are bringing it up as, Daniel, I don't know. But I just know, or I believe, that people don't like any level of freedom. I mean, if you think about something as basic as walking across the street and those little signs that tell you when you can walk and when you can't walk. I mean, I, I'm in New York, nobody pays attention to these signs, but some people do. And I'm always shocked to see people who do. My point is, is that in large part, people prefer there to be a sign to tell them when they can walk and when they can't walk. So you don't have to think about it. It's not even that. I mean, it's not a question of not having to think about it. The real debate here that you're bringing up, <clears throat> excuse me, is whether in fact we have that pure freedom that I guess the Grand Inquisitor is, is discussing and bringing up. As far as you're concerned, it doesn't really exist existentially, right? I'm saying that I don't think it can exist all the time in all circumstances. I think sometimes you do get it in certain situations when, you know, things align and, you know, it comes down in that way. You can be attentive and conscious and you can you can make a choice. But I think in, in other circumstances, well, I mean, 
mean, okay, that's reasonable. That can be up for debate. But I think that there's no freedom that people are comfortable with. None. That's interesting, though. Why do we think that we do want freedom then, I I guess, is the next interesting question. Well, I mean, if you think about it, do you like being told what to do? Did you like it when your parents told you what to do? Do you like it when a teacher told you what to do? Nobody likes it. I'm not sure why they don't like it. I'm not sure if this is written into us biologically. I don't know. But there is a quality in us as human beings that seems to prefer or to seek some form of freedom. Well, you want to choose to give up your freedom. You know, you don't want to be enslaved, yet you also don't want to be free. You would rather have, I think, again, this thing to worship, that line again, uh, nothing so anxious is something to worship for. It would be better if you could give everything up to something. I'm not a religious person at all, though I consider myself to be a spiritual person, let's say. And for the past decade, I've been struggling with what to go on the pedestal now, what to put as a standard of if living. Anything. Yeah, well, there's, I have the, uh, I feel like I've got that misplaced, I've got this leftover will or something. I'd like to be able to dedicate my life to something, to give up for a greater good or to be uh, involved um, with that good feeling. Because I, I think that we also see this, people want to do the, well, I don't know, do the right thing. You know, there's something about that, like the sympathy that Jesus shows at the end is a kind of answer as well. I agree that we seem to be in tension with our attention, that we don't, we're limited people. We have a finite resource of it. We want to do something. And so we're constantly worried about making the bus on time or being there then or saying the right thing. But I think that's the that's the problem he's really trying to outlay. It's that that having those goals and then trying you're going to struggle all the time to keep up to it. You might as well let all of that go. And then then you also lose that anxiety along with giving up that freedom because you're not trying to control your life any longer or take it to imaginary ends. I find that that's one of the most interesting parts of the book is, you know, what do you put on the pedestal if not religion? I mean, the Grand Inquisitor seems to think that you need that perfection that religion provides to dedicate your life to. And, you know, anything else, I think explicitly says science, you know, it just won't work. Maybe you'll think it will after a while but eventually will become crashing down. I get like even stupid examples. I don't have a religion, but like when I choose what to eat, I think in terms of like what's healthy. And sometimes I like don't eat the healthy option and feel like I did something sinful. Even, mm. you know? Yeah. Or what's the ethical food? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or ethical or free range, homegrown, vocal. <laughs> Yeah, you can't win with that. Yeah, well, maybe there's nothing there. I mean, maybe it's, you know, uh, maybe there's that thing about the example. You know, you've, you've got to look backwards and inside, you know, look at yourself and follow your heart. You know, I think that there's that struggle that Ivan and Alosha have at the end. You know, your head's full of all these things and you're just tearing yourself apart and you're just going to go, you know, wishes that he could just make it easier for him. Um, and he can't. He's struggling and he's got all the radical ideas of uh, modern you know, science and free thinking and atheism going yeah, and for does, him. But does, and doesn't everybody, and isn't that what the Grand Inquisitor is saying? Everybody has that, has those ideas, those struggles, those contradictions. Again, I love the devil conception. You know, it's not, it's not a guy that just wants you to do bad. It's self-destruction and non-existence haunting you. And, and Jesus on the pinnacle there, that story he told where he's tempting him with, I think, like the first question he paraphrases is, you know, well, if 
God loves you, then you can jump off of this here and he won't, he won't let you die. He won't, you know, let you be hurt that way. You should try it. And he's like, well, you know that he was just trying to get you to kill yourself though, that that was a trick that if you had done it, you would just have died. And, and that's really all. Yeah. I feel like there's like 10 philosophers who read that part. I read like Freud's death drive out of that. You can get like whatever Zizek's talking about in his weird psychoanalysis. Any of you guys read a book called Nudge by a guy named Cass Sunstein? About the psychological um, leading people or how people are, you know, kind of led along in their behavior. Marketing maybe is a, a manifestation of that. That's one. Yeah, it's it's a sort of call for a sort of um, cogsci based technocratic um, way of uh, setting policy so that we use cognitive biases to organize social engineering so that people make choices that lead to better actions or more efficient actions or more moral actions by the opportunities that we present to them. So if you give people a choice to choose to do one of two things and we don't want them to do thing A, then maybe, you know, if we present it in a different way, like you choose not to do thing A, then they choose thing B, which is the better option more often. And it's essentially the same choice, just in a different frame that tends to lead to a different result just because of the way it comes down. The reason I bring that up is because I think that's another aspect to freedom that's a little bit kind of closer to the line of that I was taking on consciousness and attention a minute ago. Like, and I think it applies to moral choices too, because I think there's an, an interval and a set of conditions. And, then, and I think this has practical application, which is exactly what that book is about. But there's an interval and a set of conditions to making moral choices and to having an opportunity to consider things that plays directly into the way. And this is what's interesting about the Grand Inquisitor in the church, because he seems to acknowledge that and they acknowledge the way that bread and human bodily function and, you know, necessity works into that and how that's going to affect the way that people set their morality up and it's going to affect the way that they're able to follow through on it. And I think that that is one thing about this story that's interesting to keep in mind is that it's not only about a system of ethics or morals or, or whether or not there's this big God in the sky and, you know, that's going to be the sole determinant about whether or not we're free. Moral considerations would do well to take more account of. And I think the Grand Inquisitor's approach sort of hinted at a lot of that. An actor and a singer. <laughs> yeah. I've got I've got all sorts of tricks. I can do one magic trick.